This morning is a very special morning uh, for all of us, especially if you know Andrew. If you don't know Andrew, you're about to get to know Andrew. So Andrew West is with us this morning. Um, Andrew grew up here at Calvary Church. I first met him when Andrew was a high school student, and um, he didn't like me. But then I wore him down, and then he did, no, just, so Andrew served here as our middle school pastor. He served here as our worship pastor. He was one of our teaching pastors. He's now a lead pastor up at a church in Grass Valley. Um, he's an amazing teacher. He's an amazing guy, and he's just a, a real blessing to have back. You've been up there now four years? Four years. Four years. You're growing up right in front of my eyes. It's kind of intimidating because uh, you're going to look at somebody who's way better looking than me for the next half hour or so. So anyways, why don't you welcome Andrew up this morning to uh, teach us. It's quite the uh, introduction. Um, I, I just have to share this because I feel like it's appropriate. One of my favorite memories with Dale was when he was in Maui and I came to visit and we were at the rental car station. You picked me up from the airport and the, uh, the lady was watching us interact and she's like, oh, is that your dad? <laughs> and I just looked at him and he looked at me and we just, he loved it, I think. Yeah. That's why I share it with you. Um, but it is, uh, it is. It is so good to be back here and to see so many of you. And uh, as Dale said, I, I grew up in this church and left its mark on me. And then I had the privilege of not only growing up here, but serving as a pastor. And the incredible privilege that it was to walk with, with so many of you for, for many years. Um, and so this just feels like a gift uh, to be here with you. And I'm really excited because you're currently going through the book of Mark. Uh, and so this morning, what we're going to spend time doing is just looking at the life of Jesus, what he said, what he did, uh, as we just walk through uh, chapter 9. Um, and not all of chapter 9. If you know me, you know I like to go low and slow. We're not going through all of chapter 9. We're just grabbing a, a first chunk of it um, but where we find ourselves is on the tail end of Danny and Dale, uh, the last couple weeks walked us through just some of the, the myths, this, this confrontation where Peter is seeing clearly who Jesus is. He says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the one. But Jesus also gives them some words that are a little uh, disorienting where he's talking to them about, yes, but I've come to suffer, I've come to die, and all who follow after me, you need to deny yourself. Danny walked through this idea last week that we really need to be rooting our identity in Jesus. And now uh, we come to a scene and a moment where we are being directed to the singular voice we are to listen to above all others. And, and just, you know, spoiler alert, it's Jesus. Probably not a surprise, you're, you know, you're in a church, but we're gonna be looking at why we should listen to the voice of Jesus. Because where we find ourselves and the way in which this unfolds, we're going to see all sorts of threads that have been woven throughout the Hebrew scriptures that are leading us to this beautiful tapestry in this moment where it's not just that we listen to Jesus, but we're, we're to hear him, meaning we're to take his words and we're to live them and then to enact them and to practice them in the light and in the dark and in all seasons, in all times, everywhere. 
So if you have your Bible, feel free to turn with me to Mark uh, chapter 9. We'll pick up in verse 2, and we'll begin. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. After six days. This is six days after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, and now Jesus is getting away with three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, the two brothers, and he's taking them up to a high mountain so that they can be by themselves. In Luke's account of Jesus' life, he says they go up to this mountain so that they can pray together. Now, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, Dale talked around this idea of when Mark brings us geographical locations, there's a reason for that. Because the original audience would have heard those geographical locations, they would have understood the context. So when the disciples and Jesus make their way to Caesarea Philippi, those who are first hearing that would know that what happens in Caesarea Philippi stays in Caesarea Philippi because that was a place of pagan worship. But here, we don't get that much detail, do we? Jesus led them up to a high, nondescript mountain. Now, there's all sorts of conversation as to which mountain is this, and some people have theories that it's Mount Hermon, and that mountain's about 9,200 feet high. There's others that think it's Mount Tabor, but Mark doesn't care about that. He's given us all the details that we need to understand where he's taking us in this moment. Because high mountains, if you pull on that thread throughout Scripture, are a place of revelation. It's a place where God has historically spoken to his people, where they spend time with him. It was on Mount Sinai where Moses would receive the law, the Torah that would guide the Israelite people, that a cloud would cover and the presence of God would speak and the glory of God would pass by him. Again, it was on Mount Horeb where Elijah, after experiencing this incredible moment where God showed up in a profound way, suddenly is fleeing for his life, questioning if there's anyone else who believes in God the way that he believes in God. And God takes him up to a mountain where he speaks to him in a whisper. And so here we see that Jesus is going up to a high mountain flanked by three of his disciples so that they can go and be alone with God and hear from him. Continuing on, it says, and he was transfigured before him or before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So as he takes these three disciples up to a mountain, they're alone with him, and suddenly Jesus' very appearance changed. Or rather, his very appearance was revealed. Jesus, who is divine and human, suddenly the glory of who he is is shining through. He's radiant, intensely white. His clothes are glowing. Matthew describes that in this moment, Jesus' very face shone like the sun. And as I'm reading this, what starts to pop in my mind is where else have we heard of the radiance of Jesus? Well, if we go to Hebrews, the author of Hebrews tells us that long ago and in many ways, uh, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so here the disciples, these three disciples are seeing the very radiance of Jesus. 
And if that wasn't enough to kind of garner their attention, to kind of lock them in on what's happening here, uh, we read in verse 4, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. I mean, just imagine for a moment that you are following in the footsteps of Jesus. You're going up to a mountaintop with him to be alone. You're there with him. You're praying well into the night. And as your eyes are closed in concentration, just with an intensity of prayer, or as Luke tells us that they were praying so intently that they they fell asleep, um, which feels like we could all be there, right? We've, We've done that before, praying and then you just cash out. But as your eyes are closed, suddenly light begins to shine through your eyelids. So bright that you open up your eyes. And if it wasn't enough that Jesus is there radiantly glowing before you, now you see standing next to him, talking with him, Elijah and Moses. Now a question I always have when I read this account in particular, how did they know? How did they know that it was like, was it like they could tell by the beard or like they follow him on Instagram? No, they didn't have any of that. They have no idea what's going on here. But somehow they know that this is Elijah, this is Moses. Two prophets, two men of renown that these disciples had grown up reading their stories, reading their writings, reading how God had used them. But just to like blow your mind a little bit more, Moses, who had died some 1,400 years earlier, uh, Elijah, who was taken up by the Lord some 900 years earlier, now standing before both of them on this mountain, talking with Jesus. So how how do the disciples respond in this moment? I mean, how would any of us really respond in this moment as you're trying to take in the scene before you? And what does Peter do? Peter, who I think is, is just such a, a gift to us all because he just reacts. You know, he's not always sure what to do, but he just speaks. And so Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, many people read this, and we like to give Peter a hard time because it seems like he's always putting his foot in his mouth. But let's be honest. If you were there in this moment, would you ever want to leave that mountain? If Jesus is showing up in all of his radiance, suddenly Elijah and Moses are standing there, wouldn't you want to just sit in their presence, ask questions, just hear them go back and forth? You wouldn't even have to enter the conversation. You could just listen to them talking and be like, this this is incredible. And so Peter responds out of his terror, out of just not even knowing how to enter into this moment, by saying, Lord, let me just set up a tent for you, a tent for Moses, and a tent for Elijah, because he just wants to dwell in their presence. See, Peter, Peter would never forget this moment. Even in his later writings in 2 Peter, he alludes back to this moment when he saw the glory of Jesus shining through. And for Peter, this idea of tents or or tabernacles would be fresh on his mind because the the Feast of Booths was coming up soon. And and what the Feast of Booths uh, celebrated and reminded people of was when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, when they lived in tents, when they were living under the stars. And they remembered those wilderness wanderings. They remembered uh, even in the, the wandering and their suffering that they experienced that God's provision and faithfulness was always present to his people, even in the wilds. 
And so Peter, terrified in this moment, saying, can we just stay here? Let's never go back down uh, the mountain. But just as as that was intense enough, it it continues to grow in intensity. Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. As this entire scene is unfolding, there should have, for the disciples, been this vague sense of of familiarity to what's happening and to what they were experiencing. But here now, all subtleties are, are dropped, and the point is being made incredibly clear. A cloud now overshadows them. A cloud often seen as representing the very presence of God throughout Scripture. It was a cloud that enveloped Mount Sinai as Moses met with the Lord. And we read in Exodus 24, 16, it says that the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, just go back to verse 2. Where did we start? It was after six days that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain. It was after six days that God spoke to Moses out of the cloud. And now here, God is speaking once again. The disciples are seeing the very radiance of Jesus. They're seeing Elijah and Moses show up on the scene. Now the cloud of presence is coming around them. The glory of God envelops them. And out of the cloud, he speaks And what does he say? This, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now we we have echoes here, right? You've been going through the book of Mark. This takes us back to Jesus' baptism when God speaks over Jesus. But at the baptism, God speaks directly to Jesus. You are my beloved son. Now he's speaking to the disciples. This is my beloved son. And what are they supposed to do with this information, understanding that the beloved son is in their presence? What does he say? Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to who? Was it Moses and Elijah who were on either side of him? No, because now they're gone from the scene. They've disappeared. They, they came, they're gone. We're, we're not sure how all of that's transpiring, but he's saying, listen to my son. Now, when Moses and Elijah showed up on the scene, what were they doing? They were talking with Jesus. Even the way that's worded, who's given prominence in that moment? It's Jesus. They were looking to Jesus. All of this, all of this scene is pointing to the priority and the prominence of Jesus. All the law and all the Torah represented by Moses' very presence, it's pointing to Jesus. All of the prophets that spoke so long ago, represented in Elijah, are all pointing to Jesus. The various threads that we see being tugged on here and woven from the Hebrew scriptures into this moment are pointing to the priority and the prominence of Jesus. See, Elijah knew his place. Moses knew his place. Moses spoke uh, so long ago in Deuteronomy 18 and 15, saying, The Lord your God will raise up for you another prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And what does Moses say about this one? It is to him you shall listen. 
And now the Lord speaking from a cloud, speaking to the disciples, saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, this is just a bonus slide for you this week to kind of pull on these threads for yourself. Uh, You can take a picture of this and just read through these passages this week and see where this is all kind of building the context of where we find ourselves and be encouraged that all of Scripture is this beautiful unified story that points to and from Jesus. And so here we're seeing God speaking over his disciples, all these allusions to these different moments of Scripture coming together in this moment. And who are the disciples to listen to above all others? Jesus. And so if if we are a disciple of Jesus, if we are a learner of Jesus, if we are a follower of Jesus, patterning our lives after him, looking to practice what he says, who should we be listening to above all others? Jesus. But the question I have is, who, who do we actually listen to? In your life, who do you turn to that you really hear from? Even when you don't like what they say, you can still hear it. Because we have a really good way of going to the voices that will just reaffirm what we're already thinking. But here we're being told to listen to Jesus. When he confronts you, when he encourages you, when he pushes on you, when he pulls more from you, to listen to Jesus. Now, what's so hard about this is that when we walk through our day, we have competition all the time. We have voices trying to get our attention from the very moment we wake up. We have a device that dings and alarms and wants to get our attention every second of every day. We have email, and we want to check that before we start our day. And what is God saying in this moment to the disciples? All that can wait. Listen to him. This is where we start. But this idea of, of listening, there's, there's weight to this. Again, it's another thread that we start to tug on because the, the word that's used here for it, listen, is in the Greek, it's akuo. The, the Hebrew equivalent of that word, shema. And to shema means not only to hear, but to obey. It means you don't just hear the syllables and the words coming out of somebody's mouth, but you have understanding that you take what is being said and you now act on it. You practice it. The Shema. It was a prayer that the Israelite people and any good Jewish person would pray every day of their lives. Jesus would pray this very prayer coming from Deuteronomy 6 where he would say, Hear, Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Again, to hear the Lord is to obey the Lord. And here in this moment, God is saying to hear his son, to listen to his son, to obey his son. Now, I know that word obey is one that we get a little uncomfortable with, but that's what Jesus is calling us into, is obedience to his word, even when it's uncomfortable. As you have listened to the Torah, this is what God is speaking in this moment. As Moses and Elijah show up, now they're disappeared, and he's telling Jesus' disciples, this is my beloved son. 
As you listen to the Torah and the scriptures and what I have told you, now listen to my son. As you listen to the prophets like Elijah, now listen to my son. Why? Because he is the living word. The word become flesh. But what else is Jesus? We're told that Jesus is, is light in whom there is no darkness. And now Peter, James, and John are sitting in this moment, and they have just seen a full dose of the radiance and the light of Jesus. And as we continue walking through uh, the gospel of Mark, asking this question of what did he say, what did he do, in the context of all that has been leading up to this moment, what has Jesus been talking about? What has he been preparing his disciples for before he's revealed in glory? What, what has been the, the, the main central conversation? He's been talking about death. He's been talking about his death. He's been talking about his suffering. And how well are the disciples taking it? They're like, no, I'm not sure about this. We didn't sign up for this. You're supposed to be a conquering king. You're supposed to come and overcome all the troubles. You're supposed to make everything right. And now you're talking about dying. There's no context for this. They're trying to figure out what is going on here. And in the midst of that conversation where Jesus is saying, I've come to die, but in my dying, you'll have life. God shows up and says, listen to him. Hear what he is saying. Hear what he is saying, that even in suffering, there is life. Even in your pain, you'll find purpose. See, the disciples were were listening to Jesus, but they weren't truly hearing him. They weren't living out these words. Because so often, the, the furthest path the words of Jesus have to take, right, are the 18 inches from our head to our heart. We can, we can hear it. We can nod in agreement and be like, yes, I should listen to Jesus. But actually, when that shows up in life, that is real hard. That is real hard. And so as God, once again, is endorsing his son, pointing to the priority and the prominence of Jesus, we see that even in this, even after getting a glimpse of Jesus' glory, they're still wrestling with it. This whole scene transpires, and now they're going to make their way down the mountain. And as they're making their way down the mountain, what do we read in verse 9? As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. What's the first thing Jesus is talking about? He said, don't tell anyone what you've seen until I've risen from the dead, right? There's a lot to unpack in that sentence. Like, I'm going to die. I'm also going to rise. And they're like, what? What What is happening in this moment? But he tells them to keep it under wraps. We see throughout Mark, there's this secretive nature of what Jesus is doing. This actually is the last uh, direct injunctive to be quiet. And, And here, actually, Jesus gives some reason. Like, I don't want you to talk about this until I've risen from the dead. But could you imagine experiencing something this good, this holy, this incredible, and not being able to talk about it? Like, what a disappointment. I imagine Peter, like, can't wait to get back to the other disciples. Can't wait to get back to his brother Andrew and be like, you will never guess what happened, right? They get back to the other disciples, and the disciples are like, hey, how did it go up on the mountain? They're like, well, you know, we were praying pretty intently, and then, you know, I'd really been meditating on the words of Moses for a long time, and I was stuck at this part that didn't make sense. So when he showed up, I asked him, you know, and they're like, what? But they didn't get that moment, because Jesus is like, I need you I need you to keep quiet about this until I rise 
until, until I come back from the dead. Again, I think in this moment, they're, they're listening, but they're not truly hearing what Jesus is continuing to point them to. So verse 10 says, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Again, it's worth noting, in all the, the crazy that they've just experienced and seen, their continued question is, what does he mean by this death and rising from the dead? They're still trying to get a handle on what, what is this really all about? It didn't make sense, but they, they still had another question, and they asked him in verse 11, what do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? They've just seen Elijah. They know these prophecies that Elijah is supposed to come uh, to set all things right. And this idea, they're not just pulling from thin air. Again, they're pulling on the thread of Scripture, and they're going back to what the prophet Malachi had said in Malachi 3.1 and in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. He said this, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This language is actually what was used to introduce John the Baptist in his ministry. But then we have this idea in Malachi 4, 5, and 6 that says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so many expected that when the Messiah would come, when the day of the Lord would come, this day of, of awesome judgment would come, that Elijah would show up first in some form. But I think actually tucked in here is, is the disciples hoping that, well, if Elijah comes first and he restores all things, then maybe, Jesus, you don't have to die. I know you keep talking about this death and suffering and this rising again, but maybe if Elijah comes first, he's just going to smooth the path so much that you don't have to go down that path because that does not make sense to where we find ourselves. But if they were truly hoping that would be the case, Jesus dashes those hopes real fast. What does he say? Verse 12, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. What's Jesus saying here in this moment? He's saying, guys, Elijah has come. And here he's referring to the ministry of, of John the Baptist, and he's like, what, what was John's experience? What did John experience as he came preaching a message of repentance and he drew great crowds in the wilderness, but where did that lead him? Well, he called out Herod for marrying his brother's wife and now he had an evil king and an e evil queen coming after him uh, that demanded his head and they took his life. And Jesus is saying, you see, you see the path that John paved for me? It, it wasn't all up and to the right. The path of suffering has been laid in the same way they treated him. They're, they're going to treat me. See, Jesus was on a collision course with death and suffering. And as much as the disciples did not want to hear it, it was going to happen. And Jesus was inviting them into the same path, just as he's inviting us into the same path. So thanks for having me. I hope you enjoy the rest of your suffering, and uh, suffer well, and we'll, we'll, see you, we'll see you when we see you next, right? I mean, that, that you're reading this, and it's like, where, what, is, what is happening in this passage? But where does this leave us? See, I think this actually leaves us with hope, and here's why. 
None of us in this room enjoy pain. None of us like sorrow. None of us like a feeling of purposelessness. None of us like a feeling of being alone or unwanted. But what we know in life is we're not going to be able to avoid all those things. Because, man, they come whether we want them or not. And Jesus is continuing to talk that the way of life is through death. And he's making it so clear to his disciples. And in turn, he's making it so clear to us. But in his repetition and in his own way, what is he reminding us of? He's saying death will not win. Even when it seems it has, it will not win. If we listen to him, if we shema, if we hear the words of Jesus before he ever dies, what's he predicting? That he will rise again. That he will have life. That he will conquer death. But all the disciples could hear was the words on death when really we should be hearing words of life that help us through those valleys, through those seasons of death. Because again, Jesus is pointing a way of life through death. And here in this passage, what we looked at this morning, we get a preview. The disciples see Jesus in his glorified state. We will see that again. He's shining in the radiance of all his glory. The light of the world has come. And what does scripture tell us? That darkness cannot overcome it. Try as it will, it cannot overcome the will and way of Jesus. So when we follow him, wherever he leads, even in the valleys, even in the mountaintops, even in suffering, even in death, we can see that God can bring purpose to our pain. He can bring light to the dark. See, this is the, the beauty of a Savior who doesn't stay removed. Right? He embraces humanity. He actually gives deeper meaning to our humanity. This is why the author of Hebrews says, we, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And we're all going to need help in time of need. See, what I know is that in a gathering like this, some of you are here for that very purpose. You just need a, a, an expression of God's presence in your life because you, you don't know if you can even get to tomorrow because there's so much weight that we carry. There's so much hurt. There's so much pain that we see all around us. And if we try and muster and do that on our own, it's, it's not, we can't do it. But Jesus is saying there's a, there's a better way. And I need you to know that I see you so much so that I, I came and I experienced what you experienced. I know what that is, but, but take heart. Because in this world, you'll have trouble, but behold, I've overcome the world. Stick with me. Listen to me. So where do we begin to lean into this? Where do we begin to embrace this? Well, we start by recognizing that Jesus is the beloved Son of God. That he came into this world to save us to rescue us, to redeem us. And we are to listen 
to him. We are to embrace him and trust him. We not only take him at his word, but we are to put his very words into practice. We are to trust his voice above all others. When life is good, when life is hard, when we have joy, when we have pain, whatever season we find ourselves. See, the the hard thing is that he doesn't always remove the pain in the way that we want but he provides what we need in the midst of that pain. He allows us to see that there's, there's purpose in that pain. And so we listen to him. We hear him. We trust his words of life, trusting that he can give us strength even in the land of death, for he will overcome. But to hear him, to hear him, we must be with him. And when we are with him, we must actually listen to him. And when he speaks, we must act. And where he leads, we must go. And what he invites us into, we must live. In all seasons, in all times, in everything, we listen to him. So this week, practice. Practice listening to him. Set aside time daily. Now, I know some of you are great at this. Some of you, maybe you were great at this, and you've drifted. Some of you, you've never set aside time just to, to hear from God, to be quiet before him, to allow him to be the first voice you hear in your day. I have to tell you, I try to do this every day, and it is like a battle every day because there's so many things that want to compete with his voice. But I want him to be first because I want him to shape how I'm going into my day. I want him to be last in my day because I want him to shape how I'm going to sleep. Because if I'm going through my to-do list as I'm going to sleep, I'm already feeling the anxiety of the next day rising and all the things that are coming. So how do we practice just sitting and listening to him? So be intentional. Set aside time. And then, then here's the other piece of this. Right? When you're listening to him and he speaks, when he impresses something from Scripture upon you as you're, you're reading through the Word and it suddenly comes alive to you and you're like, I can't get past this verse for whatever reason. I think he wants me to pay attention to this. You sit with that. You let that stew. You let that marinate. Go, God, what are you drawing me into here? And then whatever he's asking you, do it. Trust it. Live it. Because God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So let's do what he says. Now I know that is so simple and yet so hard and also so incredible that Jesus is inviting us into relationship with him where we can actually interact with him. But imagine if he was the voice we went to first if he was the voice we gave the greatest weight to in our life and we began to do what he says and to follow where he leads. Can you imagine the impact that would have of knowing that whatever you're walking through, you're not walking through alone, but he is with you and he is for you and he has you. 
This is the beauty of what Jesus is displaying to his disciples. They're going to have a lot of questions as they see their Savior hung on a cross, but then they're going to remember in those moments. But remember what he said? He would rise again. And what did he do? He rose again. He took a grave and he turned it into a garden. And the same is possible for us here and now as it was there and then. So I want to invite the worship team up. And as we move into a time of response, here's what I'd like to do. Communion's going to be available as it often is each week. People are going to be available if you need prayer, if you just need someone to pray over you. But as we close, I want to encourage you in this time simply to listen to him. And maybe that's just taking a simple posture of open hands and saying, Lord, speak, I'm, I'm, I'm listening. I want to I hear from you this morning. For some of you, this might be new, right? You might have just found your way in here this morning and you're like, now I'm hearing from God. Yeah, he wants to speak to you. There's a reason you're here. For others of you, uh, I think God's been speaking to you for a while. But you don't want to hear what he has to say. And so I want to encourage you, if that's you, if he's been inviting you into a, a hard conversation, if he's in, inviting you into an opportunity, then sit before him and say, Lord, would you, would you turn my reluctance into a yes to you in all things? And allow him to speak over you, to listen to him. And may all of us in this place trust him, asking him to speak and asking him to give us ears to hear and courageous feet to follow wherever he may lead. Let me pray for us. Father, as we come before you, we just take a moment to be quiet. God, I pray you would start conversations and help us to hear. as we continue in song and communion of remembering what you've done for us. If we just need to sit in conversation with you right now, would we feel the freedom to do so? But Lord, would you help us to practice this, not just today, but every day? Placing priority on your voice, your way, your will, trusting that you are with us for any who feel as though the dark is winning, would they know that your light shines 
and that darkness will not overcome. So Lord, meet us. Restore us. Overwhelm us with your presence that we may trust in you and hear you. Jesus, we love you. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.